Welcome back. I'm Amy Buhasen, co-director of the Limaner Archives and Limaner and Roland Penrose's granddaughter. And I'm reading these love letters, which have been tucked away in the Limaner Archives for around 80 years, as part of the Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs series. At the end of the last episode, Roland had just attended the opening of the Exposition Internationale de Surrealisme in Paris, and Lee had become Sister of the Serpents in her latest desert adventure. But it's March now, and Roland had last heard from Lee in January. My darling Lee, I love you, I adore you. But you are a monstrously bad letter writer. Worse than me, in fact. If it comes to calculating the number of letters per month, Katia tells me that you do not change, and that gives me courage and some consolation. But I find the empty-handed postman a filthy individual to have to tolerate. Katia, this change of colour is just to try out my new two-colour pen, is as sweet a complicated soul as you can find this side of the continent. I have seen quite a lot of her lately. She explains to me her super love affair, which is torturing for the moment, the same as during last summer, and takes me to visit her friends, including a highbrow Trotskyist burglar who has made good by writing a book called Low Company and who now lives in Hampstead. I got back here about a fortnight ago after a weekend in the snow at Montana and a few days' debauchery in Paris on my way back. I hated the snow, really, in spite of incredibly fine weather, and I remembered your instructions to keep off skiing. Actually, all the broken arms and legs I wasn't much tempted and contented myself with a few turns round the skating lake, where I sat down enough to come home with a very blue behind. On getting back here, I found my little half-Spanish cutie in bed with jaundice and had to nurse her through a week of fever, injections and sugar-eating. Now she's all right and more amorous than a flying fox. One rather unusual event took place in the palatial offices of Somerset House. I was sent for official medical examination to see if I was capable of the male act in connection with my divorce. Two very aged white-whiskered doctors pinched me and asked me questions which embarrassed them more than me, while two pigeons on the columns of the window front set to work to show that they had no difficulties in enjoying themselves. Finally, the old men dismissed me with approval, and in three months' time will testify that I am a male before the judge. I felt swindled in that they hadn't asked for a more complete demonstration." This morning your card of Old Man Osiris arrived with all its virgin beauty. Very nice, but my love, it's your resurrection I want, and I'm getting very impatient. Some days I feel just bloody and can't understand why I should continue to care for you at all. But I do all the same, and I suppose by sheer perversity I long for your return more than anything else in the world. You must come soon now. It's already nearly spring. No sign of your friend Kate Davis Pulitzer, who I hoped would bring news of you. Did you give her my address properly? I've been working quite a lot at my painting. I'm sending you a photo by ordinary mail of a picture I did thinking of you. But it's only quite small, not meant to be a likeness, and looks nothing without colour. 
London is dull at the moment. Not much happening anywhere, and more empty than usual. I saw the new Cecil DeMille film, Buccaneer, with Eileen and Joseph. It's good stuff, some marvellous scenery, and the usual dose of blood and thunder. I learned quite a lot of American history, though you would probably find it very inaccurate. I'm expecting a visit from little Eluard, Tripotin any day now, though God knows what he'll look like since the doctors and dentists of Brussels have been let loose on his gently decomposing physique. He left Paris in a bad way, complaining to everyone that he was dying. La syphilis dentaire, or some such malady of his own invention. Has your portrait arrived? It ought to have reached you by now, and if it hasn't, you must let me know at once, so as to make a row. My darling, write to me. Let me know when you are coming. I'll meet you anywhere you like. Can we plan a tour? Yugoslavia? Portugal? Wherever you like, if you only let me know a bit in advance. Darling, I want you. All my love to you. Roland. How do you like my new two-in-one combination Dunhill pen? Hampstead, 4th of March. Darling, I don't despise a blank card, a Cirrus playing games with himself, even less one of you playing games with snakes and asking for tampax and addresses. Mine, by the way, is 21 Downshire Hill, NW3. But, Lee, frankly, it's not enough. You've made me greedy, and I'm just damned hungry for a letter by now. I've asked so many times that all I can think is that something's changed very much at your end. But you can't let me down like that. You must at least give me a clue. To think that a bloody piece of saddle girth and a horse brass, which I notice you are wearing in the postcard, should know more about it than me. Should have been cleverer than I, in that they can still hold you round your waist, makes me pretty sore. It makes me think you need holding tighter than most. That my ideas that you would not let me down were very starry-eyed. At any rate, you have slipped off my cable effectively, and I feel angry, miserable and bewildered, holding on to a line that's gone dead. Darling, once more, do right. Here, among other happenings and the usual run of parties, etc., Tripotan has taken a plunge. He has taken over the London Gallery in Cork Street and is coming to live in London and run it. I too have sunk a bit of money in it, and my stock of pictures may come in useful. Paul and Noosh are going to pay me a visit soon. We have been having such superb spring weather lately that I am beginning to get the traveller's itch. I shall certainly be off somewhere abroad next month. I have seen quite a lot of Katya recently. She is moving in big finance just now and going to open a business. There's lots more I can tell you, but I don't know if it would interest you any more. At any rate, you know where to write now, and here are the other addresses you asked for. Manray, 40 Rue des Forts Rocherin, 14E. André Breton, 42 Rue Fontaine, 9E. Paul Eluard, 54 Rue Legendre, 7E. Picasso, 23 Rue La Bretre. 
Maison, the London Gallery, 28 Cork Street, W1. Lee, I love you in spite of your bitchiness. So this letter is dated the 9th of March, 1938, and it's on her lovely creamy kind of airmail paper, and it's typed, it's about four pages, and in her little blue envelopes with the little tiny little blue spots in the pattern all over it. Darling, I got assorted documents in several languages, various coloured inks, sizes and shapes, all heralding the arrival of the famous portrait. Described incidentally as one oil painting framed. My God, it could be anything from a Rubens to a sketch for a Christmas calendar. My backside is leaking with excitement, or maybe it's just leaking because I have a gippy tummy due to too much binging. I'm giving a cocktail party as a vernissage next Sunday, which gives six days for argument and tomorrows at the customs office and for choosing a suitable place to hang it. And if everything goes quickly, I'll even have a day to gloat over it all by myself. Several days ago, I was in my antiquary shop and was wearing my famous necklace. I was on my way to a fancy cocktail party. And the antiquary gent leapt on it, kept me waiting for an hour and says it's a second century something from Fools or somewhere near the Black Sea, that it was priceless, etc., where did I get it and was it stolen? That it shouldn't be mounted in pearls but in cornelians or at least that those pearls weren't as old as the necklace, though conceivably it had pearls, they wouldn't have lasted all this time. So I'm having it restrung with knots between on account of what the gentleman said that it was criminal to risk it. But the holes are very large in both the gold and the gold phalluses and I don't see how they could knot it. In the meantime, I've named them all except a few, and I'm keeping a reserve for any future adventures. Also, they aren't phalluses, but hearts, according to the creature. I almost sailed for Paris next Saturday, but called it off in a stormy scene in favour of going in about a month's time, peaceably. So I'm expected to stay with the Eloards in Paris, and Aziz says that I should write them and arrange to ask if it's all right. I'm sending this letter in care of Noosh as I know that you're to be in Paris these days about the big show and feel sure that you'll get it quicker. I couldn't really have left next Saturday in any case as it's very cold in Europe by all reports and I have nothing warm enough to wear and couldn't possibly get it in six days' time. And besides which, I have no money until several weeks when the dividends are paid. They went and changed the date on me, so between Aziz having the right to m'empêcher de partir and my having no money anyway, my scheme for leaving this week naturally fell in the water. On the other hand, we had a long discussion about my restlessness and Aziz thinks that I will be better off for a flying trip to Paris or London. I feel like doing crazy things and don't feel like doing them here is the point, that I can't stand this constant thwarting of my really bad instincts for going nuts and I'd better leave for a while until I calm down, so I shall be coming soon, and we'll want to go on a tear, see people, go places on the spur of the moment, etc. I said I could stay with Paul and Noosh, so that must be gotten round somehow, and I'd like to come in March. Where will you be, etc.? I don't think that London would be such a good idea to start for, as I couldn't honestly say that I have many friends there, but really ought to go to Paris, on account of Man Ray, etc., or if they're all going away, I could arrange to go where they go. You know the song, I go where you go, I stay where you stay, etc. Forever. 
for my forevers aren't especially important. And darling, do you miss me? Or are you imagining that I'm nicer and more exciting than I am? And are you forgetting how difficult and discontented I always am? And exigent and restless? And how in hell can I possibly go away and leave my lovely new picture? And I couldn't possibly take it with me, as that would certainly look as if I didn't intend to come back here. But I really do intend to return. As on my very mature thinking, I think that a double life is what I was meant to live. Half here, and another half there, and dividing my heart up into little bits. I've spent so much of my life having it torn between this and that, between one or one hundred men, and still loving them all. It would be. All the foregoing letter seems to be more than slightly hysterical. It was written several weeks ago, believe it or not, and I've neglected you for all this time. With the exception of my snake charmer picture postcard, there really have been lots of adventures and certainly a great deal of excitement, so much so that I even managed to forget you for a lot of the time. I'm not in the least ashamed to say. In fact, I'm really grateful because otherwise life would have gone on being just the same old hell with little variation except for lancing myself into crazier things at each turning, which is also what I've been doing, and enjoying it so much that I've gotten absent-minded. My cocktail party was a tremendous success, and so much conversation and criticism was started by it that I was cursing Picasso and all the pictures ever painted. Two or three people even thought I showed it as a deliberate insult to them and everyone, and were convinced that it was all tongue-in-cheek. You must remember that there are really people here who have never seen or heard of modern pictures and that they seem to be quite normal people otherwise. Except for occasions like this, you'd never notice that they'd never thought in their lives. In 110 people, besides my own family, there were not more than six who'd heard of the name of any modern painter or remembered ever having seen a particular modern painting anyway. And of those six only three had ever heard of Picasso. You see, I'm in exile. The usual and so-called comic criticism was that any Sheiky could do the same on any rainy afternoon. So in that I had a dinner party on my hands two days later, about 20 people all young, I bought the town out in paints and Watson board and set them to it after dinner. To make the occasion really memorable, two boys who knew what we were doing after dinner arrived in surrealist costumes, which included gas masks, piss pots full of flowers, etc., and were really quite funny. Oh boy, the stark description of her guest knowledge of art really shows how much of a cultural desert Lee was living in compared to her artistic life in Paris. At this time, however, she was involved in an artistic undercurrent, which would result in the creation of the Surrealist Art and Liberty Group. I think it's fair to say that the two boys who she speaks more favourably of, who arrived in Gasmas, would go on to be members of this really important movement. My name is Sam Bardowell, and I am the co-founder and curator at Art Reoriented, the Art and Liberty Group is a surrealist group of artists that was founded in Cairo in 1938. These were artists that were young. They were very much aware that change was necessary, but also they felt that there was a certain inequality that was permeating all of Egyptian society at the time. Relatively speaking, Cairo was, was very safe. And this led to an influx of so many artists and thinkers and creatives and anti-fascists and anti-Nazis 
to Cairo who were fleeing the persecution and oppression of artists and freedom of expression that was happening in Europe at the time. So a lot of Italians like Angelo Deris, Hungarians like Etienne Sved, uh, Greeks, British were all coming to Cairo and they were finding each other. It was not about Egyptianness, it was not about nationality, it was truly about uh, standing up to what was going on and uh, seeking a sort of economic and social justice, fighting against nationalism in Egypt, fighting against the colonial presence, fighting, of course, against the fascist ideologies and Nazism, and working with surrealism and using surrealism as a language to be able to express these ideas and to be able to instigate this kind of revolution. I had my mouth painted in green makeup and my nails their usual blue-green. Everyone got very tight and painted beautiful pictures, except that they were all very realistic and very dirty-minded. The party was a great fling and convinced them all that it wasn't all so easy. In the meantime, I've lent my surrealistic library to everyone in town and they're beginning to have ideas on the subject. One of the things that Lee Miller did that was instrumental in developing uh, more awareness about surrealism within the younger artist circles in, in Cairo is that she opened up her library that was full of publications by several figures of the international surrealist movement. She opened up her library to all the younger artists like George Hanayn, Ramses Yunan, Kamil Tilmisani. Um, she was lending them books, she was lending them material that they were reading um, and then some of it would be translated into Arabic or into French, if it was in English, uh, for instance, and would appear in some of the early publications of Agri Liberté. So that was one of the key uh, things that she did in disseminating more knowledge about surrealism within uh, the Cairo art scene. I've seen more of Amy Smart than I used to, and I'm disappointed that I find her stupid and superficial. She once knew Dali and Max Ernst, she paints pictures and owns several lots, a Picasso etching or something and two Dalis, so figures herself quite a girl, but she's a nasty, bloody-minded character, and I can't use her for anything. <laughs> Lee gives her such a withering review here, but Amy was an instrumental member of the Arts and Liberty group, and the two would eventually, I promise, become friends. So Lee would actually refer to Amy Nimmer as Amy Smart. And the reason for this is because Amy, after having been engaged to Jean Luxat, the famous modernist tapestry artist, would get married to the Oriental Secretary at the British Embassy in Cairo. And his name was Walter Smart. And hence, she would be forever Amy Smart, uh, as far as Lee was concerned. Amy Nimmer was certainly instrumental in advancing the surrealist movement in Egypt. She had studied at the Slade very early on and was very, very established in the art circles in London at the time. And then she would move to Paris from the early 20s onwards. She would have a studio in Paris in the Villa Sera. The Villa Sera was a very important place for many young avant-garde artists and writers. Henry Miller and Anais Nin were there. Salvador Dali was there. Another Egyptian Greek surrealist, Mayo, was there. So what's special about Amy is that she wasn't only aware of the initial kind of surrealist ideas that were centered around Breton in Paris from the early 20s. She was also part of the circles that were revisiting the initial kind of uh, ideologies of surrealism and the tenets of the movement and kind of 
adapting them both formally and theoretically to fit a younger generation, a next kind of generation of surrealist artists. And this is where her role becomes very instrumental because when she moves back to Cairo, uh, she actually provides the surrealists in Cairo with an insight into not only the French version of surrealism, but to the British ideas that were coming out with people like Herbert Reed, of course, Roland Penrose. At the beginning, Lee Miller did not warm up a lot to her because she comes from a very wealthy family. Uh, she had a great collection of Chinese porcelain. She had all these things that perhaps would make Lee cringe. But very soon, Lee would realize that Amy had so much more to offer and was far more liberal and um, connected to what was happening at the time than she had originally thought. And this is why she would even recommend to Roland that he would visit Amy when she's not in town. My beloved friends, the Hopkinsons, have left for Athens already a month ago, and it's all been very empty for me. Henry is the boy in the Suez adventure, and we spent last weekend in Luxor together, eight of us from Cairo, and the Hops and I went to Edfu again. I'm pretty miserable without them. Since then, I've taken on all the army boys, and the weather being better, it allows desert excursions and trips. Egypt had gained independence from Britain in 1922, but a very large British force remained in Egypt to guard the Suez Canal, a vital link to British territories in Asia and East Africa. I'm Hilary Roberts, Senior Curator of Photography at Imperial War Museums, Britain's National Museum of Modern Conflict. In 1936, the Egyptian government forced Britain to reduce its Egyptian force to 10,000 men. Their role now included training and equipping the Egyptian army. 10,000 was still a large presence, of course, and the army maintained four large military bases in Egypt. Two were in the vicinity of Cairo, and the others were in Alexandria and Moascar. So the army boys that Lee references in her letter would almost certainly have been British. I've gone in for camel riding, can now do about six hours a day. My current ambition is to have my own racing camel, do it up very fine in my own colours and ride it around wearing a jalebba, to leave cars and go to tea with old ladies. I've already lured about ten people into camels and once the first disaster is over, muscularly, they all like it. One feels terribly superior feet above the heads of the passers-bys and very comfortable. Darling, I'm not in the mood to continue this letter. I'm feeling vague and tired and depressed. Usually I'm so keyed up that pounding a machine and telling you my adventures would be a relief. But for once since I'm here, I'm just languid and feeling helpless. I've had so many adventures... One's really worth recounting to you that it seems a shame to rate them by not giving you the details in some sort of good humour. You can't imagine how grateful I am for all the little reminders that come from you. The catalogues of shows, magazines, books and photos. And the Tampax arrived just too late. And I'll only be using it once again before I leave and see you again, I hope. The Tampax applicator was patented by Dr Earl Haas, a Colorado general practitioner, in 1933. His company launched in 1936. From 1937, the product was marketed in national magazines worldwide by the McCann Erickson Agency. Women were hired as educational consultants or Tampax ladies in American cities. As a result, 
sales and awareness of Tampax increased fivefold. Lee's curiosity and appetite for innovation would have put her in the vanguard of new users, although what Roland thought of this request is something I can only imagine. By 1943, Tampax were used by a quarter of women, mostly young and educated, but sanitary towels were still the product of choice for the majority, and their availability, particularly in countries such as Egypt, was very limited indeed. Actually, that particular desert trip was called off due to rain and washouts in the desert, so I didn't need it so desperately, just for ordinary comfort, on account that you can't ride a camel and wear a cotex, especially for several days. If I stay in Egypt as long as Easter, I'm going to Petra on a six-day trip, but that's by car. Don't neglect me. I know I'm a bitch and don't deserve loving attention, but I want it just the same. Life wouldn't be livable if I thought you weren't there and wanting me. I know that I said that you ought to fall in love with someone else and build a new life for yourself, but now I don't want you to. I'm selfish, and I want you and don't want you to forget me. I'm busy trying to figure out how your pen works in two colours. I can't even get one that will function in one. But I have a wonderful pencil that does four, except that I've used all the blue and black and can't replace them. It was wonderful for frottage. Darling, I love you. And I feel very low as I've not had a drink all day and I want one. Been drinking too much for anyone, especially for me, and decided that I'd better stop. This is the day and I'm not enjoying it. I could easily and with pleasure become an alcoholic, but I won't. All my love, Lee. Lee is often portrayed as a drunk in later life, when she uses alcohol to try and block out the horrors that she saw in the war and cope with PTSD and depression. But it's overlooked that she did eventually pull herself out of dependency and learn to live with her mental darkness, and in fact reinvented herself as a celebrity gourmet cook. It's interesting that she has an awareness of consumption here already, and maybe these are the seeds of a part of her personality that made this in later life possible. Sweetie, I asked for these addresses and you didn't send them. Paul, Man Ray, Picasso, Dora, Huné, Tripoutin, Eileen, Joseph. I lost my book and could never send even a postcard. Lee's also written that in pencil at the end of her letter, and she continues along around the edge of the letter, writing, lovely you, lovely you, lovely you, all joined up, almost like a pretty pattern. And this is the first time she kind of adds some kind of design to her letters by hand. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. In the next one, world politics begin to impact on their relationship as Lee goes to Palestine amid political turmoil and Roland attends his own marches against Chamberlain in London. Our guests on this episode were Sam Bardul, co-founder of Art Reorientated and co-curator of the Art and Liberty exhibition which opened at the Pompidou in 2016. Our other guest was Hilary Roberts, senior curator of photography from the Imperial War Museums London. Lee's letters are read and presented by me, Amy Buhesen, the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives, and Roland Penrose's letters are read by Adam Grayson. The music is composed by David Cullen and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. The series is copyright Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved.